Is there a plot to life? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not for us improvisers. No, there is only energy and light, a way of seeing. A reading life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. I am thinking of Miss Cull. I'm always thinking of Miss Cull. She is part of me. Another self, another life. Miss Cull would like to be in the movies, but she hasn't got the right sort of apparel. Apparel. The right sort of face, Miss Cull. The right sort of appearance. Edith, bones. You need bones to be on screen. Bones showing all over the place. Where are your bones, Edith? Glistening, glistening bones. Light sliding along in the dark. Piano keys trilling and dancing. Piano keys. Bones to play upon, Edith. Bones. Where are your bones? No one would want to press down upon your bones, Edith, says Meg, her sister. Says Mary, the local impresario. Bones, Edith. No one would want to press down on your bones. Mary. Mary, the church warden. You must have heard of her. Everyone's heard of Mary. Mary's opinion counts. It counts. Let's... Mary. Mary. Even Mary goes wrong sometimes, and there I went wrong as Mary. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, my mother used to say. But Mary's opinion counts. Let's just say that Mary sets the tone of the place. The tone of the place. Too many blandishments, Edith. Soft cushions your face, homely, rough patched. Make and mend, make and mend, Edith. Too many blandishments, says Mary, whose tone counts. In truth, Edith was wiry. Edith was wiry. Bones she had, but they stuck out at angles. Wiry, wiry, wiry. No angel, Edith. Only a fallen spout, her mother used to say. Edith didn't understand the significance of that, the spout. Her mother used to speak of spouts for no reason at all. Long metal shapes rearing out of nowhere. Dark dawns and nights, a spout, a spout. Whenever there was a fight, and there were always fights. The knives Edith could see the steel flashing through the dark and wondered about that shape. That shape. Spouts on the top of roofs. Spouts. Spouts down the drains. Drains blocked in bad weather, smothered by leaves. Spouts. 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 I can't get out, said Edith. I can't get out of here. A ladder. I need a ladder. 
I need a ladder. A ladder is required to clear it out. The leaves, my spout. You don't get to be in the movies if you require a ladder, do you, Edith? Do you? Do you? I disagree. I disagree. Me, the author. A ladder? A ladder up? Why, everyone needs a ladder up. Silver rungs glinting through the dark. A ladder up. Jacob? Jacob wrestling with the angel. He needed a ladder up. And so does every writer and artist. And so does every character, Edith. Up you go now. Up, 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 Edith. Up. I have been reading a very strange book by a man called John Fowles. Fowles, F-O-W-L-E-S. I'm thinking of hens. I'm thinking of chickens. Fowls, fowls, strange creatures. And so is this book. So is this book called Daniel Martin. A man's name. It's a bitchy sort of book, and I don't use that word often. In fact, I rarely use it. My mother would never approve of such language, but it is a bitchy book. Bitchy is the right word for it. Bitcheries and abortions, said the poet, Sylvia Plath. Or her speaker, anyway. Bitcheries and abortions, by which she meant, by which she meant, plans coming to an end. Creative plans. Also, creative relationships. Friendships broken and fallen down, fallen down, fallen down the ladder. The ladder, the ladder, the ladder. London, London, the ladder. No, the bridge, the bridge, the bridge, London Bridge. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down. My fair lady. Edith wishes she was that. She wishes she was that, a fair lady, a fair lady. There are many fair ladies in this book by John Fowles, far too many to remember. They come in pairs, Jane and now Jenny and now Jane and now Jenny and Nell, Nell and Jane and Nell and Jenny. Have I remembered them all? And every now and then there's a few fair men, Anthony and Dan and Barney and Daniel Martin. They'll get caught up in the movie business, I bet ya. Business. Film production. It's a book about film and the way we act our way through life, pretending to be a star. To ourselves. To ourselves and others until the plot runs out and we realise that isn't how love works. No. It isn't. It isn't how trust works either. No trust. No trust. No trust is broken. Trust is broken frequently on screen. Sordid betrayals, a string of them. That's the plot of Daniel Martin. It reminds me of something. All those scandals we heard about in the newspaper. Headlines. The headlines and on the telly in the 1980s when all the glamorous people came to life. In grey and black and white, 
the glamorous people. All those glamorous squabbles going on and on and on in the papers. Everybody seemed to have big hair and big noses and big teeth and large mouths wide open. Spouting, always spouting nonsense about some mistress or the other. He brought home where it happened with her and with him and what was seen and what was heard and what was known about their dirty business. Usually there was a man with a helicopter involved with a large fortune and his name was, quite often, Michael. Michael Heseltine, I remember him, and he was quite glamorous and had long flicked hair across his forehead and a rather well-shaped nose and he looked as though he went on holiday quite often in his helicopter, I suppose. In any case, everybody seems to be made for the movies these days, but it all started... Round about then, when I was round about eight or nine or ten in the 1980s. That glamorous life, that glamorous life, led on screen. All public, all public, no private, no private, no private in the end. And perhaps it was the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end for us poets who prefer never to be seen. And perhaps it was the beginning of the end for us poets who prefer never to be seen. So much of this novel is wrestling with the idea of handing your private life over to a public space, a public screen, other selves, an audience, your spectators. How will you be punished if you do so? What crimes will you be accused of? Crimes and punishments. Crimes and punishments. We all have them. Daniel Martin the effect of public on private history is mysterious. Or perhaps I should say, since our century can hardly be accused of not trying to solve the enigma, mysterious to me. All my life I have veered between a belief in at least a degree of free will and in a determinism. The effect of public on private history what is it? What is it when you hand your private life over to an unregarding public, I wonder? Daniel Martin is a screenwriter working in Hollywood, dissatisfied with his career, dissatisfied with the commercial art he sees being spawned by that place, dissatisfied with the women, increasingly dissatisfied with his own past and perhaps his own future. 
time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo, my words echo thus in your mind, in your mind, my words echo. Burnt Norton by T.S. Eliot John Fowles on the 1930s Daniel Martin, his narrator, his speaker, his character, his protagonist Our 1930s were not like the world's, not shadowed at all to this small boy, but endlessly leafy, sunlit, ancient, walled, secure, spaced by bells, all smell of mown grass and islanded from towns, ancient, walled, secure, spaced by bells. The only real shadow lay beyond the iron gate that led through into the churchyard. My unknown mother's grave. Ancient walled, leafy, sunlit, Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. 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 What I'm about to read to you, I'm not sure I quite understand yet. So I will have to read it several times over and over again until perhaps the light comes on. This is the speaker of John Fowles' novel, Daniel Martin. 
speaking in the I voice. And the I shifts and changes. It is mutable in this novel, in this narration, and therefore sometimes it's hard to fasten onto him. It's a reflective eye, an eye looking backwards, because aren't we all always doing that? He speaks of worlds, worlds I have never known, worlds I have seen only at the cinema, at the theatre, in a novel. This is his eye speaking. I disowned all this world for so long simply because I saw it as freakishly abnormal. But I see it now as no more than an extreme example of the general case. My contemporaries were all brought up in some degree of the 19th century, since the 20th did not begin till 1945. That is why we are on the rack forced into one of the longest and most abrupt cultural stretches in the history of mankind. Forced into one of the longest and most abrupt cultural stretches in the history of mankind. Already what I was before the Second World War seems far more than four decades away. Much more like the same number of centuries. The speaker of Daniel Martin, recollecting, trying to gather up time and space, trying to gather up experience and pinch it together inside the neat folds of his sentences as though living were a balanced matter. Who's he kidding? Who's he kidding, really? Sometimes the speaker drifts off into a sort of trance of philosophical speculation on his own past. It is partly a memoir, this novel I am reading. It is partly a film script. It is partly a play. It is partly a commonplace book, a journal, a diary. It is partly a letter to his former self and all those he has loved and lost. And then, and then, what we once were is now severed, severed in a very special way from the present, reduced to an object, an artifice, an antique, a flashback. Something discontinuous and disconnected from present being. And then he goes on to muse about his entire generation who were born before the Second World War and who arrived at university, which happened to be the University of Oxford, in the late 40s, after the war, around 1948 or so. My generation wanted to shed unnecessary guilt Irrational respect, emotional dependence. But the process has become altogether too much like sterilization. It may be a remedy for one problem, but
but it has created another. We are saved from breeding relationships we cannot feed, but we are also prevented from breeding those we need. All pasts shall be coerval, a backworld uniformly not present, relegated to the status of so many family snapshots. The mode of recollection usurps the reality of the recalled. The mode of recollection usurps the reality of the recalled. Now, I'm going to read that again quietly to myself because I'm not quite sure what it all means yet. So bear with me. Bear with me. Dan Martin, Daniel Martin, Dan, Dan, Dan is writing a play called The Empty Church that attempted to exorcise his father's ghost. That attempted to exorcise my father's ghost from my life. Come on, came on, it came on. Those old ghosts. The empty church, the empty church. But all this is in retrospect. All this is retrospect. Dan did a second draft. Dan was drawn into the first fringes of the celluloid world, the celluloid world. Like a foolish shrimp, into a sea anemone, a foolish shrimp, into a sea anemone, the celluloid world. This book, Daniel Martin, is obsessed with success, with sex and success, with marriage and success, with playwriting and writing and success, with fame and success, and then with dismal failure after the first or the second or the third draft of a marriage, of a life, of a relationship with himself, with himself. This is a book really about a successful or unsuccessful relationship with a self who is pretending to be many things at once. A true actor, I suppose. Perhaps in order to write, you have to act too. Act out your personae. There's this passage, this short passage rather confessional from the protagonist, Daniel Martin. I don't know what it was, whether mere lust or some perverse need to prove to myself that success was the highest moral good, the highest moral good. 
instead of ordinary human decency. Success. The highest moral good. Rather than ordinary human decency. To be decent is to be unsuccessful then? Surely not. Surely not. And so the plot unfolds as a series of successful or unsuccessful choices to marry or not marry, to go to bed with or not to go to bed with, to have a child or not to have a child. I suppose the most terrible marriages are where the child is the wedge or is used as the wedge that splits the stone. The child that splits the stone. King Arthur. Guinevere. The myth of romance. The movies. Miss Gull. Mr. Jarvis at the chemist. Her imagined beloved. Splits the stone. Splits the stone. Is there a plot to life? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not for us improvisers. No, there is only energy and light, a way of seeing. The line is never straight, it always comes at a zig-zag, always an interruption, that siren going off, always a siren going off, that sound, now, passing over Donnington Bridge Road. Life doesn't follow a plot. There is no road. A plot is a through line. But life rarely follows straight through down the road. Always there is interruption. Something crooked. The knock at the door. Letters and telegrams. Telegrams, remember those? The deadly note. Sometimes, the body lying out. Major Fortescue understood that while you might try to march straight, there are always those damn weeds in the way. I watched the Major practising his parade as I passed through Lobswood. Why, the Major? Borrowed partly from life. And partly from all those mysteries I read. The concatenation of character.
I say this in the Green Lady about plot. I say this, me, the author. A plot is a through line. A plot is a through line. Think of a fishing line. Down she goes, down, down. But life rarely follows straight through or down. Always there is interruption. Something grabbing at your flow, a fishy on the end of the line. Tug, 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 tug. Something crooked, my hook. The knock at the door, letters and telegrams. Remember those? My grandmother did. The deadly note. The body lying out. Who did it? Who did it? Who did it? The straight line through the plot. Who did it? Does anyone know where we're going? Major Fortescue understood that while you might try to march straight through, there are always those damn weeds in the way. I watched the Major practising his parade as I passed through Lobb's Wood. Why, the Major? You must have heard of him. Every town had one. Every town that I knew. The Major borrowed partly from life and partly from all those mysteries I read. The concatenation of character. We stitch it all together until we have some sort of plot some sort of life to lead. But I prefer to see life as a series of moments, close-ups. John Fowles is very good at small cameo parts, characters that walk on and whose presence is a kind of pathetic treatise with life. Characters who disappear into the shadows, often tragically, but whose short appearance leaves a profound impression. This character, Andrea, one of the lovers of Daniel Martin. A careless man. A careless man. I knew her too well by then, and the depressive streak in her nature. It was far more a feeling that she had had the last word about all our private lives, all our profession, all our age. God really had been a frustrated and paranoid alien, and we had all been members of that seedy Polish veterans club. He had wasted his life drunkenly managing off the Bayswater Road. I never came to face with Vladislav, but I have seen him ever since she died, implacably behind each scene of the great illusion. 
and we don't quite know how these lives add up. Andrea, one of the lovers, married unfortunately to a man called Vladislav, who belonged to a seedy Polish club off the Bayswater Road. They disappear into the shadows behind the curtains of that great illusion plot plot they drop off like dead birds from a roof down the spout Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.